Hello everyone. Today's Bible reading shall be taken from the book of Psalms, chapter 132 and 134, respectively. I'll be reading from the New International Version, Psalms 132. O Lord, remember David and the hardship he endured. He swore and called to the Lord and made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to bed. I will, I will allow no sleep to my eyes, no slumber to my eyelids, till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. We had it in Africa. We came upon it, upon it in the field of Jericho. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your praise be clothed with righteousness. May your saints sing for joy. For the sake of David, your servant, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord saw and hold to David a sure hope that will that he will not revoke. One of your own descendants has a place on his throne. If your son keeps my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their son will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Zion has chosen Zion. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwellings. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Our poor will I satisfy with food. I will clothe her praise with salvation. And I thank we ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemy with shame, but the crown on his head will be resplendent. Psalms 134. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. May the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, bless you from Zion. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Good morning again and welcome. It's good to be with you. It's good to, it's good to see you. Uh, I did not plan this, <laughs> that we would be coming to the end of our journey through the Psalms of Ascent. At the same week, we would be ending our journey through lockdown, but I'm finding it quite fitting <laughs> because the Psalms of Ascent describe pilgrimage. It describes the journeying of God's people from disparate places into the one central location 
for the worship of the Lord. And it's fitting that we come to these two Psalms, Psalm 132 and Psalm 134, because these Psalms bring us to Jerusalem. These Psalms have been about the journey, and as we wrap up this series, I want to just remind you a bit of what these Psalms are meant to be evoking in the reader and in the worshiper. These Psalms are all about the pilgrim people of God leaving a distant land and drawing near to God at His altar, meeting God in His temple. And here, we've seen throughout this series that the journey starts oftentimes in a distant and a desolate place. Along the way, there's challenges, there's remembrances of people who've oppressed, people who have harmed and hurt the people of God. And along the way, they are working in remembrance of what they expect God to do and to be for them when they finally get to be in his presence. I don't know what you've been thinking about these last few months as you've been forced, confined, uh, restricted to a very small area, to a very small group of people. I don't know about you, but I know for, for me, it's been just such a joy and a delight to see the people of God again and to be able to to encourage one another and to receive that encouragement. There's just something about the Spirit of God and other believers that makes my spirit encouraged. And if during this time of lockdown, we've, we've been pulled apart, we've been separated, but it's a reminder that we are being ultimately drawn together into the glory of God and in His grace. Well, we come to these two Psalms that bring us into Jerusalem and as we think about what the pilgrims might have been considering and contemplating, it's, it's really easy to take all the time in that journey to wonder, what's it going to be like when I get there? I think there's some people sort of wondering that about either coming back to church or uh, even, even the whole Christian journey in and of itself. What, what's it going to be like when we get to the end? What's it going to be like when we get there? And you can imagine the doubt that would have crept in. But these psalms remind us, ultimately, that there is joy in the destination. And the joy comes because when we arrive at the destination, God is there. We will see him there. And that's kind of the big lesson for us today, is that we can access the presence of God. This is the truth that rings through from these psalms. I want you to stop and think for a moment what, what that means, to be able to access the presence of God. This is the hope of the Christian, to be with God, to right now, in this moment in time, to be able to have access to his presence. It seems unfathomable. But this is what the songs were all about. This is what the journey was all about. It was about being in the presence of God. This is the truth you need to hear today. You can access the presence of God. You say, do you mean that, 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 that the creator and the author of the universe is willing and ready to have me in his audience? Yes. 
We're going to talk more about this as we go through. But it raises the question, well, where is God to be found? <laughs> if we can have access to God, where is God to be found? I think this is a very real question for a lot of people. I'm not, I'm not talking about sort of all your Sunday school lessons. I just want to, at, a, at the very human level, the purpose, you could argue, of all religion is for human beings to access the supernatural, to access the divine. And Christianity has an answer for that, that you can access God himself. But you need to know where he is, Right? This psalm is going to probe, these psalms are going to probe this question, where is God to be found? And this is extremely important because if God can be found, then there is hope. If there is a God and he can be found and I can access him, then that is ultimately a reality game changer. Because it means that I'm not left to myself, I'm not left to my own wits, to my own to, to my own means, it means that there is someone more powerful than me who has an interest in me, who is able to intervene, potentially, in my life and in my circumstances, and is able to lift my existence out of this, this soul-destroying vacuum of random chance and into some level of purpose and significance that lasts beyond these however many years I'm granted. If God exists and he can be found, then there is something more than molecules holding this universe together. If God exists and he can be found, then perhaps maybe even death is not the end. If there is a God who can be found, then there is hope for the things that plague us. It's a significant question. And this is not only the premise of the Psalms of Ascent, you could argue this is the premise of the Christian story this is the premise of the whole narrative of Scripture. That we can have access now to God, but we need to know where to find Him. By way of overview today, we're going to see that these Psalms 132 and 134 fittingly end the pilgrim journey in Zion. These Psalms, in a way, sort of answer, what's it like to arrive? What's it like to be there? And in this, they express the basis for, as well as the practice of hope. The basis for hope, as well as the practice of hope, what it looks like to live that out, which is to be found truly in God's presence. Together, they anticipate the joyful celebration that awaits God's pilgrim people upon their arrival in God's presence. Can I tell you, if your view of the church is earthbound and is empty of the true and real presence of God, I don't know why you're here. I really don't. Yes, you could say, oh, we want to learn good morals and learn good ethics. Yes, it's nice to belong to a group of people, but can I tell you, there's clubs for that. There's books you can read about self-help. 
There's trained psychologists and counselors who you can give money to and they will, they will happily delve into the depths of your life and your psyche. If there is no true means and possibility of knowing the living God, I don't know why you're here. Our outline this morning, it depicts the journey that we make to God in three stages. Seeking God, which answers the question, where do we look? (laughs) And we'll look at the first half of Psalm 132. Finding God, or meeting God, I should say, which which answers the question, well, where is he to be found? And then the the third one, waiting on God. What what does it mean to be in his presence? What should we do when we meet him? What what do we do when we get there? What, What does it look like? These psalms are going to speak into that. But right now I ask you to pray with me as we seek the Lord. Father in heaven, we know that through the risen Christ, the Spirit has been made available to us, that he has poured out your Spirit, your presence among your people. And so we look to you this morning that we might understand, that we might be transformed that our minds would be renewed and that we wouldn't be conformed to the image of this world. Lord, would you speak to us from your word today? For your word is truth. Your word does not fail. And your word is eternal. Lord, we need these words. Would you bless us today in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 132 it has a special place among the Psalms of Ascent because it's, it's the longest in the Psalms of Ascent. It's, it's almost more than double the next longest Psalm. And, and some have suggested that, that this Psalm is sort of like the Old Testament version of the Nativity play. We're, we're coming up to Christmas next month, so you can say, yep, he ticked the, we're sort of wetting the appetite for Christmas. And one of the things that we love to do at Christmas time is have the nativity play, you know? You dress up the kids and, you know, they get to put on the big tunics and the shirts and they walk around with staffs and, they, and, and you have the little box and you maybe get a baby doll and you put Jesus in the manger. And, and we rehearse this, right, every year, right? Because we're describing for our children the, the, the reality of, of God's presence among us. Well, God's presence among his people was not something that was just new for the New Testament people. It was actually the hope of the Jews as well. But what do you do for a nativity play before the nativity? (laughs) Psalm 132, some have suggested, is sort of the answer to that. It's it's kind of this this rehearsal, (laughs) as it were, of, of God joining his people. And so I'm going to put on the screen for you uh, a breakdown that's not unique to, to this author, Nancy DeClass Walford, but I liked how she visually represented it in her commentary. And, and the psalm is, is really in two parts. It's a, it's a prayer and it's a response to the prayer. It's a plea and an answer. But as you can see on the screen, hopefully... There is a balance and a response to each of these statements. So it begins with a plea, with, it begins, excuse me, with David's vow to God. 
Then we read about God's vow to David. The story of the ark is rehearsed, and then you have God's response to that story. You have a prayer for the priests and the people, and then you have the answer to the prayer for the priests and the people. You have a prayer for David, and then you have the response to David's prayer. So this psalm's gonna feel a bit different because it's gonna feel like it's grabbing from all these different areas of the Old Testament. But it's likely written in the later, later, later period, after the exile, after the second temple has been built. And they're recalling, they're listening, they're rehearsing the story of God coming to them. Knight said this, he said, taken all in all, what the psalm is saying is that the hope of Israel rested not in any particular pious acts of the sinner, King David, but on the double promise of God to choose within the covenant both the person of David as God's son and the place of Zion for his footstool. Psalm 132 is about God's promise to dwell in a place and to anoint a person. Dwell in a place and to anoint a person and David's centrality in that. Well, we've said the whole sort of structure of this message is where do we go to find God? And in this first part of Psalm 132, we look at this question, where should we look for him? If we want to access the presence of God, where do we look? And what I need you to see here is that God is not everywhere. And he's also not just anywhere. Do you catch my meaning? There are some who say God is in everything. God is in the tree. God is in the bird. God is in the ground. God is in my Wi-Fi connection. God is, God is in my, my matter, in my marrow. There's some who, who, who argue that. And while the Bible presents God as someone who is omniscient and and imminent and omnipresent, meaning he is not left out of anything. There is not this sense that God is in everything. But he's also not just in random places either. He's in the places that he chooses. When we look for God, the scripture is clear that God is neither part of us nor is he far from us. People will talk today about needing to get in touch with their, their inner spirituality. And on the one level, I, I, I raise the flag and I say, yes, that's great because you're recognizing you're a spiritual being. This is really good. But sometimes when people say that, what they mean is they're trying to find the divine within themselves. But the Bible says often, over and over again, God is not a man. God is not a woman. God is not found by looking inward. You cannot access God simply by probing your deepest thoughts and feelings. Those might be very helpful exercises for you. They might be things that, that lead you to realizations. But to think that all you need to do to find God is to go and look within is wrong, is misguided. 
It's also wrong and misguided to think that God is so far distant, he's so far gone that you have no hope of even, uh, of even accessing him at all, that, that he's sort of wound up the universe, put it on the shelf, and gone for a long walk, and we don't know when he's ever going to come back. You see, both are wrong. When Paul was preaching to the Greeks in Athens, and he said, he said, yeah, I saw this altar to an unknown God. He said, you know, God apportioned peoples and times and places, and he did this so that they might seek him, that they might find him, though he's not far from any of us. So God is not a part of me. He's not in my matter, but he's also not so far distant that I cannot relate to him or to find him. He's near. And so what we find in Psalm 132 is the probing of this question, particularly the first half. And we see here a real encounter with God is going to come on his terms. Jump with me as we look to the psalm. Verse 1, the plea is, Lord, remember David. We don't know what was going on in Jerusalem, we don't know what was happening at the time, but it was clearly this, this sense of distress, this tension. Lord, will you think about your servant David? Will you recall him? We'll see why in a minute. And all his self-denial. Well, many of us think of David and Bathsheba, and we say there wasn't a lot of self-denial there. This is not referring to David's self-denial in terms of his, his self-control or probably even his hardships, but the, the, the phrase self-denial there is specifically used about David's restraint, his, his lack of spending resources on his own gain. If you look towards the end of David's life, he is obsessed with the building of a temple, and he chooses not to use his wealth as a king to pad his own resources, but to stockpile these resources as a treasure for God, to build the house of God. This is his self-denial. The psalmist recounts, now we don't have this language from David per se, it's, it's probably a historical memory he swore an oath to the Lord. Now, David is vowing to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. Interestingly, the first time this phrase, the mighty one of Jacob, come, Jacob comes up, it's when Jacob is blessing his children. He's about to die, and he's, in effect, constituting the nation of Israel. He's blessing all his children. That's when the phrase, the mighty one of Jacob, as a title for the Lord, appears. So he swears to this, this warrior who protects God's people, the mighty one of Jacob. This is what he says, I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. It's this picture. David, David becomes consumed with his desire to build a house for the Lord. And it begs the question, does God need a place if he's everywhere? Does God need a place if he's omnipresent? What's going on here? Now, a cynic might say, well, you see, what David's trying to do is he's really trying to consolidate his power. 
He's, he, he's trying to, to set up his legacy as a king, and so if he can have the deity worshipped in, in his city within you know, earshot of his palace, well, that's sort of David putting a chokehold on, on all the other tribes, and, and, and that's, that's David's view. Do you think that's why he's doing it? Some could say, well, you know, David, he's, he's looking at this in, through Old Testament eyes, you know, and, and now that we have the Spirit of God, we can see things, you know, much better. But, you know, oh, David and his sort of those rudimentary ways of, of a few thousand years ago, you know, they just felt like they needed to, they needed to domesticate God. So, so, look, love the heart, David, but, but, you know, probably, probably just a little bit premature, a little bit immature in your orthodoxy there, David. Is that what you think? I suggest to you, if you read the story of David, if you go through the narrative of Scripture, David has a deep love for the Lord. And when you love someone, you want to be with them, don't you? When you love someone, you want others to know them, don't you? When you love someone and you find strength and you recognize how, how glorious and beautiful the mighty one of Jacob is, David wants to know that his people can access his God. He craves a place. Have you craved a sacred place? How good would it be to know that, that, that I can meet God in this place? That no matter where I am, if I can get to that place, I can meet God. I could just see him. I, I, how have you ever wanted to just, to just know whatever's happened, if I, I can guarantee if I get there, I will be with God. I suggest that's the sense. David wants his people to be able to access God. He wants God's presence and the blessing that overflows to abound for his people. And then you come in verses 6 and 7 to to this rehearsal, we talked about the nativity play, sort of this is the nativity play before the nativity. And it's a recollection of the ark and the finding of the ark. The ark of the covenant was the box. So, so the box was uh, within the holy of holies. Many of you may know this, but in case you don't, I'm just going to run through it quickly. When God was giving his servant Moses the law and explaining how he was to be worshipped by his people, he set up a place, a tent of meeting. And within the tent of meeting, there was a holy place. And later on, when the temple would be built, there would be a, a most holy place or the holy of holies. And within the holy of holies was a box. And this box was called the Ark of the Covenant, and it had very special things pertaining to the agreement that God had made with his people. So within the Ark of the Covenant were the tablets, the two tablets, the Ten Commandments, God's ten words, his stipulations as it were. There was a few other things originally put into the Ark. There was the manna, God's provision from heaven. There was also the staff of Aaron that budded. But the other thing about the Ark of the Covenant was with, on top of that Ark was this beautifully ornate cover, and that cover was called the mercy seat. 
And so here, on the cover of the box that contained God's ten words, his stipulations, was the place where once a year the blood of the sacrificial lamb would be poured, where the priest would go and make atonement for the sins of the nation. So the Ark of the Covenant not only represented God's words and his decrees, it also represented the mercy seat. But you see, the ark began to be viewed as a bit of a talisman. And so as Israel came into conflict with his neighbors, their neighbors, they understood that, you know, we need God on our side. So what they would do is they would bring the ark into battle. God said he would put his presence there. That's where he would meet with his people at the mercy seat. They thought, well, let's, let's bring God into the battle because if we don't have God on our side, how could we win? This was their thinking. And God in his providence through a bunch of reasons, for a bunch of reasons we can't get into right now, allowed the Ark of the Covenant to be captured by the Philistines, by the foreign nations. And when the Ark was captured, the Philistines didn't know what to do with it. They put it with their other sacred objects and they, somebody came into the temple of Dagon the next morning and their, their deity, the big statue of him, had fallen over, collapsed, broken in two. Finally, they worked out there's something about this ark because as they passed it around from place to place, wherever it went, it caused a plague to spread among the people who didn't know God. And so finally, the Philistines said, look, this Yahweh, he is not to be trifled with. We don't actually want this thing. By capturing the ark, we didn't capture their God we just brought judgment on ourselves, so, so we're going to send it back. So they devised this sort of system, and they tied it up to an ox cart, a yoke of oxen, some cattle, and they said, we're just going to let the cattle roam free and see where it goes. And lo and behold, the ark returned to Israel. But when it returned to Israel, it, it, it returned to this sort of wooded, foresty area called Kiriath-Jerim, which is shortened to Jar in this text. And so in verse 6, they're recalling, we heard it in Ephrathath, which is synonymous for the area of Bethlehem, the place where Ruth was brought back to, the place where David was reared, the place where Jesus would be born. And they said, we heard it in Ephrathath, and then they looked for it, and they came upon it in this wooded area in the fields. And so this, this verse 6 and 7 is recalling the, the historical search for God's presence. And the call went up, verse 7, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, which is another description of the ark. Saying, arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. That phrase, arise, Lord, is what Moses would say whenever, whenever the presence of God would lead the people of Israel out. The idea that God is on the move. And so they say, let us go to his place. Let's go to, this, let's go to the Ark of the Covenant. 
And then they pray, may your priests be clothed with righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. Because they recognize that it's not enough to simply have the presence of God among you. If you will, if you will abide with the presence of God, you must be righteous. And the priests who had a specific responsibility to minister in the presence of the Lord, they had to be righteous. And so they pray, Lord, even as we're trying to find your presence, and even as we're trying to, to have you dwell among us, would you close? those who are ministering in your presence with righteousness so that we can remain in fellowship with you. That your faithful people will sing for joy. And then the echo of verse 1 and verse 10, for the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. What we see here in these verses is that in seeking God and asking the question, where should we look for God First of all, look for God in a real time, in a real space. God interacts with real human beings in real time and in real space. If you don't think that's true, then why is the incarnation necessary? Why did Jesus have to become a human? Paul understood this when he said, at the proper time, Jesus was born. But I suggest even for us today, you're going to interact with God in a real time, in a real space. With real people. So for those of us who have this idea that I cannot access God, he's just, he's too far out there. He's not close. You need to reject that theology. Yes, he is high and lofty and holy, but he's also near. Secondly, if you're going to look for God, you should look for him in his covenant promise. We don't find God wherever we think he might be. We find God where he says he will be. And so it only makes logical sense that if you're going to try to access the presence of God, you understand what, where he has said he would put his presence. This is what I don't understand about people who, who view spiritual things like, like a trip to the ice cream shop. And they say, you know what? Today I'm going to try a bit of rum raisin. You know, try a bit of rum raisin. I normally like chocolate chip. I normally like, you know, a bit, of, a bit of mint chocolate chip sometimes for variety. This is like people who say, you know what? I go to church, but you know what? I'm going to try crystals this week. You know, I, 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 I'm going to try Buddhism. I'm just going to slap a bit of this in, into that. It's an affront to God. Either he has revealed himself through his covenant or he has not. And if he has, that's the only place where he is. Thirdly, when we look for God, we should look for him in his anointed one. Notice how the psalmist pleads. He pleads, remember David. For the sake of your servant, David, don't turn away from your anointed one. And in this, we have the clues that, that within God's framework of redemption, he is allowing grace to flow to other people through the means of one particular person. The Israelites are saying, God, because of our king before, because of that king, will you please dwell among us? Can we, can we worship at your feet? Not because of us, but because of that king, because of your anointed one, because of David. There's clues in this. 
This is where we should look for God. The second half of the psalm shows us where God is found. And here we see that God chooses to dwell with his people as a king. His presence occupies a city. And simultaneously, his presence anoints a person. God's presence occupies a city. And his presence anoints a person. Verses 11 to 18. Again, note the answers to the prayers, the echoing of the Lord. Verse 12, the Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your descendants I will place on your throne. The backstory to this was as much as David wanted to build a house for God and as much as David had this yearning for God to have a place among his people, God said to him, you're not the one to do that. One of your descendants will do that, but that's not your job to do that. But let me tell you what, you want to build me a house, David? Let me tell you, I'm going to build you a house. And it's not a house made of brick and stone, but it's a house in the dynastic sense, in the sense of a lineage, in the sense of progeny, in the sense of a king who will be on your throne forever. But note verse 12, it's a conditional covenant. If your sons, if your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. And you can imagine those returning from exile feeling the sting of these words and recognizing that there were sons of David who were not faithful. And I suggest to you that is probably why they're crying out for him to remember David because they know that their leaders have not been faithful. Nevertheless, this was God's promise. And we see here, God chooses the place. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He's desired it for his dwelling, saying, this is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. They built the temple not to sort of capture the presence of God like you might use a dream catcher to try to catch dreams. They didn't build the temple to sort of snare the presence of God. They they built the temple because God decided that he would make Zion his resting place. This is what Solomon acknowledges when he's praying after the temple's been built, this beautiful, glorious temple according to the plans and the saving of David and all that self-denial, and they have this mass slaughtering of animals, this, this mass shedding of blood as if to say, God, there's no amount of, of, of sacrifice that could really atone for all our sins. But we reckon that you are so holy and so great. And Solomon, as he gets up to pray, he starts by acknowledging, God, no, no human temple could actually contain you. There is no physical structure that could hold you, but if you choose to put your presence here, if you choose to put your name here, then you will be among us. Here is God, his, his affirmation, his assent to that prayer. The Lord has chosen Zion. He's desired it. This is my resting place. I will sit enthroned. First of all, note when God dwells, he dwells as king. When God comes, he comes as ruler and rightful king. And here, interestingly enough, at the end of this psalm, grows much hope from the New Testament. It would have been a great assurance to the people. 
Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. Here, as in Zion. Pastor Stephen made a great point during Sermon in Scripture this week when he said, if this is indeed written or used during the time of the second temple, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't there. It had been destroyed and taken off by the Babylonians. And so here the people of God have returned to worship. But they don't have an ark. They don't have a physical thing. All they have is God's promise to David. So as much as they're rehearsing and they're remembering what God has done, they're praying that God would remember David and keep his promise. And here God answers that prayer definitively. I want to just sort of color up this text to show you a few things. Note here, God says, here in Zion, in Jerusalem, here I will make a horn grow for David. We don't use that language of a horn. It seems a bit odd. It, it really means God saying, I will sprout a strong ruler. I will sprout a strong ruler for David. The word grow is the same word in, in Jeremiah's prophecy of, uh, excuse me, Isaiah's prophecy of the branch. He says, I will make a horn grow for David. I will set up a lamp for my anointed one. Note the parallel, David, an anointed one. This, this ruler that will grow up will also be a source of light. Are you seeing where we're going? I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. This is God promising to almost in a single act, you could say, disrobe his enemies and adorn the head of his anointed. Do you see where we're going? This will take place here in Zion, God says. In Jerusalem. This is where this will happen. Now, what the NIV has translated radiant crown is the same word that is used to describe the special gold plate that Aaron, the high priest, would wear on his head. So when we're thinking of the crown, we don't, shouldn't be thinking of the crown necessarily of a king, but the crown of a high priest. Do you see where we're going? So in meeting God, God is to be found... <laughs> In the establishing of his covenant with David, he's to be found enthroned in David's city, and he's to be found exalting David's son. This is where you will find God. This is why the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, the family of God, found such rich material in the Psalms to connect the dots that the Lord himself has shown them why the Messiah had to suffer and die in Jerusalem. Tucker and Grant say, even as Zion is the embodiment of Yahweh's presence on earth, the king is the embodiment of Yahweh's design for the world. What a beautiful picture. The place is meant to exhibit the rule of God, but the person is the embodiment of the ways of God and the ways of God's creation for the world. Psalm 132 declares that God's faithfulness to both Zion and David endures. 
And so they go on to say the threats rehearsed earlier in the songs of ascent. Think of Psalm 120. They do not detract them from the reality of God's faithfulness or the certainty of his promises. As people are making this pilgrim journey, this is a song they're singing. This is that that Old Testament nativity that they're rehearsing. The finding of the ark, the desire to worship at the feet of the ark in the presence of God, the recollection of God's oath and his promises to David so that even though the ark is not there in the temple, they're clinging to God's vow to raise up a horn for David who would be a lamp, who would shame his enemies but whose crown would be radiant and resplendent. And here I want to direct your attention to Ephesians 2. Paul writes here, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul, using this language of distance, looking at the work work on the cross, the death of Jesus, and he's saying it's that blood that he shed on the cross that's brought you near. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one, Jew and Gentile, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. (laughs) You think of what was in that box, the law of God. Jesus, through his atonement, is perfectly able to fulfill it and set that aside God's purpose in this is to create in Jesus one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. The picture of reconciliation is taking the hand of one person and taking the hand of another person and say, be at peace. This is reconciliation. This is what Jesus does when he spreads his arm on the cross. He takes the hand of man and he takes the hand of God and he says, I've made peace between you. There is no more hostility. And having done that, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, listen to this, through him, that's through Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. The hope of Psalm 132 is the reality of the Christian and the church today access to the Father. Through the one from David's line who would be raised up, through the one who would be a light to the nations and to the Gentiles, who through his work at the mercy seat, not the one from the earthly tabernacle, but the mercy seat in heaven, whose work there at that mercy seat might open the door for us to be able to be reconciled to God. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And now here, Paul's grabbing a metaphor And he's saying, the house of God is indeed truly the people. They now are the temple. Not 
on the basis of who they are individually, but on the basis that the Spirit of God dwells within them, within us. And so together we become the place where people meet God. This is what it means that the church and the Christians are the priesthood of all believers. It's saying that every Christian in the world is the meeting point where someone can go to encounter God. That every soul who knows Christ and trusts in him is, is a place where, where someone might gain the light of knowledge of revelation, where someone might go and, and, and hear and encounter the living God. Which brings us to Psalm 134, a very short psalm. And it raises the question for us, how can we actually wait upon him? I like what one commentator said. They said, Psalm 134 is a song for the night shift. <laughs> it's written for the priests who served the Lord during the early watches of the night. And Knight, in his commentary, hypothesized how what that journey was like after midnight when you came on in the night shift and you went around and you checked the courts and you made sure the gates were open where they needed to be and you did all the cleaning up from the day before. You made sure the, the, the sacrificial space was ready to go and you did all this stuff. And then early in the morning before your shift started, before the next group came in, you would cast lots. And isn't it interesting that this is the scene that we have in Luke's gospel with Zechariah, who comes in and it's his lot on that particular day to go and minister before the Lord. But this is a song for the night crew. And we see here that worship is the privilege of God's servants it's the, post, the posture of praise. It's both a delight and an expectation. And we will bless God as recipients of greater blessings. Very simple. Praise the Lord. Literally, bless the Lord. That's why I love that you picked that song, Steve. Bless the Lord, O my soul. That's what, the word, that's what it is here in verse 1. Bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who minister by night in the house of the Lord. This picture of God's people praising him in darkness Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. This is the command. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who is the maker of heaven and earth. And so here's this picture of these people who've been made priests. And it's dark outside. And, and, and all, the, all the worship that's to be done in the daytime hasn't started yet. But there they are in the middle of the night and the call of the psalm is, is you who are standing and worshiping the Lord, you priests, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. It's not daytime yet. But in anticipation of what's coming, praise the Lord. And the benediction, the blessing here, may the Lord bless you from Zion, he who is the maker of heaven and earth. In the New Testament, we're given this same picture where we're told that the night is almost over and the day is about to dawn. 
Paul, in his letter to Timothy, he would say he wants men everywhere to do exactly this, lift up holy hands in praise and prayer. He's referencing this psalm. And he's looking out to the Christian church and he's saying, you know what you need to be doing now, church, while we're still waiting for the sun to rise fully? You know what you need to do now? Worship. Lift up holy hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. The call to glorify God and enjoy him forever is not a form of escapism from a reality fraught with dangerous toils and snares. Rather, it's a form of confession, declaring that such powers, while real, do not measure up to the God whom we confess. We lift our hands to God, the maker of heaven and earth, assured that from him all blessings flow. Brothers and sisters, now indeed we can enter the presence of God. We can access him. And as you meet with God, as you carry his presence around through the Holy Spirit, would you be worshipers of him? I'll finish with this picture. I love this picture because it takes that it takes that picture of God's love on the cross and it shows it in a stained glass stained glass window. And I think what a beautiful picture of the church. You know, they built the cathedrals way back in the uh, Middle Ages. I got to go a few years ago and walk around and visit some cathedrals in Europe. Absolutely beautiful and breathtaking. But can I tell you? To appreciate the stained glass, you need to have light passing through it. Christians realize that right now, God is arranging us in this beautiful tapestry. And and the day is dawning. There is light. But the full brilliance and the full radiance of who we are as the church will be infinitely more glorious than even this beautiful picture when the light of Christ fully returns, when Zion is reestablished and he is reigning on earth, he brings his kingdom in all its forms here. Let's pray. Lord, you are doing a marvelous work among us. I pray that we would have boldness to enter your presence based on the work of Jesus. Lord, would you strengthen our hearts and encourage us for your purposes. Lord, you're doing a glorious work among us. We can't often see the beauty just yet, but as the light of Christ shines through us, we know that your glory is revealed, and we know that the story of Christ is told. So, Lord, may we be willing to be simple window panes reflecting that glory. Not necessarily the same, Lord, but, but each one beautiful and each one intricate to your picture. We ask you to do this in Jesus' name, amen.